This is Speaking of the Arts, Mid-Missouri's only in-depth weekly art show, recorded in the heart of the Midwest, Columbia, Missouri, and broadcast each Friday morning from 10 to 11 on 89.5 FM, KOPN Columbia. My name is Diana Moxon. This week we have a music-rich show with a musical an open house and a music festival. And 60 minutes is barely enough time to contain it all. So let's head straight out and visit them in their order on the calendar, which means our first stop is the theatre. There is a content warning on Columbia Entertainment Company's website for their upcoming production, but it ends with this. Finally, This production is a rock show. Expect loud music, dirty jokes, a breakdown of societal expectations and one hell of a good time. The production is Hedwig and the Angry Inch, a rock and roll musical about a genderqueer East German singer who is also the victim of a botched sex change operation. When the show first opened off-Broadway in 1998, it played in a landscape where the Defence of Marriage Act had been signed into law just two years prior, defining marriage as a union only valid between a man and a woman. But by the time the musical opened on Broadway in 2014, featuring Neil Patrick Harris as Hedwig, we were within just one year of the Supreme Court legalising gay marriage. Columbia Entertainment Company's Hedwig opens this weekend and is being directed by Caleb Alexander, who is here to tell us more about his production of Hedwig and the Angry Inch. Good morning, Caleb. Good morning, Diana. How are you? I am well. You know, it's been a while since you were last on the show. So long, in fact, that your appearance predates my hosting of the show. So I should say welcome back to Speaking of the Arts. Well, thank you. It has been just a moment. So this is such a fabulously high-energy rock and roll show, and it seems perfect that it is being directed by a professional musician with the music being played by a real band, the Sunday Morning Motorcycle Club, of which you are a member. What was your introduction to the world of Hedwig and the Angry Inch? I've known about it for a while. I've heard some of the music. My wife is a very big fan of the show, and when it got put up, the bass player in the band actually brought up like, we should play that. His name's John Marino and he's a chef over at Cafe Berlin now. And he was like, we need to do this. We should play this show. You guys would love it. And that is, that is kind of how this journey started. I cannot remember if it has been played in Columbia before. Sure. It must have. Do you have a, do you have knowledge of that? I know it's been done in the area. I know it was done down in Jefferson city but I don't know if it was done actually in Columbia. Okay, so this may be the Columbia premiere then that you're in charge of. Maybe. So the musical was turned into a film back in in 2001, and that featured the show's writer, John Cameron Mitchell, in the lead role. But the stage version only has two actors. So give us a synopsis of the story and introduce us to its two characters. The first person you meet is... A character named Yitzhak, played by the absolutely incredible Mary Shaw, that introduces Hedwig. And then once Hedwig takes the stage, it is Hedwig's show. (laughs) And our Hedwig is played by Dakota McQuarter. And 
again, Dakota is doing an absolutely wonderful job bringing this character to life. And it's, it covers some heavy topics, but a lot of the, it's also accompanied with very well written humor. So you talk about some heavy things, hear some dirty jokes, kind of think about it and then move on to the next topic that makes you uncomfortable a little bit and hear some dirty jokes. And it's kind of Hedwig's exploration of where they're in life right now with a lot of backstory. So give us a little of the backstory. Well, what I have typically been telling people is it Hedwig is a punk rock musical about a botched sex change operation that happens in East Berlin before the wall comes down. And then Hedwig's life after he leaves and is no longer in contact with his mother or the person that got him out out of East Berlin. You're being very coy. I don't like to give things away. Come see the show. (laughs) Yeah, but you're on the radio, so you're kind of going to give a little bit away. (laughs) Well, oh, crap. So Just a little bit. Just a little bit. The show opens with a tune called Tear Me Down, and Tear Me Down is very much a, hey, this is where I am. Take me or leave me, and I really don't care what you do with it. And it explores Hedwig's punk rock persona, and then we get some of his early life. And then there's kind of a dual character. Um, there's a character named Tommy Gnosis that really has everything that Hedwig wants to have. And we hear Dakota through voiceovers played back being Tommy. And it's, it's kind of this exploration of Hedwig did all of this work and Tommy's getting all the benefits from it. Okay. Well, as you mentioned, Tear Me Down, let's take a little listen. This is the opening track, and this is from the original Emotion soundtrack featuring John Cameron Mitchell. Don't you know me, Kansas City? I'm the new Berlin Wall. Try and tear me down. I was born on the other side of a town written to.
So that was the opening track from Hedwig and the Angry Inch from the original motion picture. So you have a master's degree in jazz pedagogy and performance, and you teach guitar both at Westminster College as well as privately. So I can see why you'd want to be involved musically in the show. So tell me, what made you want to take this on in a directorial capacity? Well, anyone who knows me knows that I have a very um, put-up-or-shut-up mentality. (laughs) And there were two people that had applied to direct Hedwig. And the first one was also the writer of the Cranky Cabaret that Columbia Entertainment Company did a couple weeks ago. And he basically said, I can do one of these. I cannot do both of these for you. Um, So he withdrew his name. And then my assistant director, Christopher Petty, was also talking about originally directing it. And he had some life changes and was just like, I don't know if I can actually commit to doing this. Mm. And I kind of looked at it and went, okay, universe, if you want to put giant flashing neon signs that I need to do this, I'm just going (laughs) to listen. So I did a quick scramble and well, not a quick scramble. I went, who should I call to do X, Y, Z? And we're really lucky. There's a gentleman here in town by the name of Alexander Freer, who during the pandemic taught lighting at Stevens College. He has actually worked in L.A. for the last few years and off Broadway. He actually is like leaving to go back to New York City in like a week um, before our run is done. So he did all the light design. Jesse Green They also applied to direct last minute. And so I brought them in as a costume designer and really had them kind of consult on a number of things for that. Justin Craig of Rose Music Hall, when it was Mojo's, came and did a sound design night for us. I also do live sound, so I but I can't be on stage and in the house at the same time. Well, so you've really got a huge support crew working with you with pretty huge talents. Yeah, I, uh, my jazz training is very much you hire people to do a job because you know they can do a job and then you just let them do their job. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of how all of those production team, um, roles were filled. Our regular show photographer couldn't do Hedwig. So we reached out to a guy by the name of Dustin Hawkins that a lot of us knew and he came and took the most amazing concert photography. If you've seen any of it on Sunday morning motorcycle club, social media or Columbia entertainment company, social media, he did all of those photos and they are fantastic. So talking about Sunday morning motorcycle club, that is the band that you are in. Tell us a little bit about them. Well, what do you want to know? Do you perform around town? What kind of music do you play? Was this, this, you said earlier on, this was their idea. How has it been transforming from a band that plays gigs to a band that plays on stage for a musical show? Those kind of things. I've known the other guitar player, Kyle Dworsky, for a really long time. Um, He actually used to be one of my guitar students. And he actually reached out to me um, last July and said, hey, it's safe to play music outside. John Marino, who is his best friend, our bass player. They had been like playing on John's front porch. And he said, why don't you come over and let's do this Um, and just kind of jam and write some music and like get this creative outlet. So we did that. Um, And I have a, I have a soundboard that also works as a field recorder. So we started recording the things we wrote. So we've never actually played a gig. Oh, okay. Cause this was wholly done as a quarantine baby. And 
when we decided to play the show, um, or decided we wanted to like ask to play the show, we needed a drummer. And I had found out that a kid that, well, he's not a kid. He's graduated from college. Now. <laughs> his name is Christopher Fusco. Somebody I knew when I was in graduate school as when he was a freshman, um, I'd heard him play. I'd worked with him a long time ago. I like Chris. So I was like, why don't I asked him if he wanted to play it? We played one night and Kyle and John came up to me afterwards and said, so can Chris just be the drummer in the band? Like, can he just be our drummer? So we came to the show as like just two guitars and a bass player and then left as a full band, which is pretty great. So what are some of the, let's say, musical challenges of putting on this show? Is it it's just a straightforward rock and roll musical, but obviously you're playing with performers. What has been the most difficult part for the band to grapple with? Some of it is we as a band, when we play just ourselves, we never do everything exactly the same way twice, which is kind of the exact opposite of what we need to happen in a musical. So that was odd, making sure these grooves and hits Um, And all of the fills were exactly the same the whole time. But really, we all have a punk rock background, which was great. The other guys much more so than me. But we actually ended up learning the show backwards. We learned the last three songs um, and got everybody comfortable and then did the last six songs and rolled it backwards so that as we go through the show, we're getting more comfortable. So the hard part was... Honestly, because of how we did it, not the music, the harder part was making sure once we got to the beginning and we could actually do a full run through the script, it was, okay, how does this story actually fit together? So that was actually the harder part, less than the music. Are you as a band on the stage and part of the performance or as in other CEC musical productions, are you hidden away? We are on stage the whole time and we get to react to some of the... uh, the the craziness that Hedwig spews. Um, <laughs> we're having a grand old time. What's interesting is we feel like rock stars. Like we're back at it. We're on stage. The lights are flashing around us. It's loud. It's like it feels very, very real, like a rock concert in all of the best possible ways. The actor Darren Chris, who played Hedwig on Broadway, said of the show, one of the main characters of the show is the audience. And what is so great about that is that that character is played in effect by a different actor every night, depending on the vibe of the crowd. So this is really a show where audiences need to bring their A-game to maximize the show's vibe. What advice do you have for the audience? be ready to come in and have some fun. Like there's a great little clip of Wynton Marsalis when he was talking about playing jazz in a theater and he's talking about a kid and this set of parents brought this little kid to watch his band and the kid's like dancing in his chair and really getting into it. And the parents like are holding this kid down apparently like, Hey, no, we need to sit here politely and do the thing. And as, as he tells it, he actually stops the show and said, no, this kid's dancing. Y'all should be dancing. This is jazz. This is what this is. This is a punk rock show. Um, if you just sit there and clap at the end, it's going to feel kind of foolish. Like, react like you would at a concert. Be ready to yell things back at Hedwig at times. 
Because Hedwig asked the audience a couple of things, I think. Perfect. Well, Hedwig in the Angry Inch opens at Columbia Entertainment Company and runs for three weekends, starting this weekend and ending on September the 12th. The show contains adult content, strong language and sexual content and covers topics that some may find triggering, including homophobia and transphobia plus there are flashing lights. Audience members are all required to wear masks throughout the performance and capacity is limited to just 75 seats per show. To find out more, visit cectheatre.org. And Caleb Alexander, thank you so much for the chat and for directing Hedwig and the Angry Inch. Thank you very much for having me, Diana. I'm willing to come talk to you whenever you want. There is an open house event tomorrow afternoon at the Vid West Studios. It's a chance to tour the studio, see a live stream demo, plus enjoy some prerequisite free food and drink. And the open house seemed like a good opportunity to check in with the president of the Vid West board, Matt Schacht, to find out a little more about the organization, how it is related to what used to be Columbia Access Television or Cat TV, what it offers to Columbia residents, and why, in the age of most everyone owning a smartphone and how having access to platforms like YouTube and social media, we need a digital community media organization. And here to explain all of that is the man himself, Matt Schacht. Good morning, Matt. Good morning, Diana. Thanks for having me. Now, I know you as a director of advertisements, short films and documentaries, but for the past couple of years, you have taken on the complicated role of how to keep cat TV a part of the media landscape. What made you want to add that challenge to your already overflowing workload? Well, Diana, it started out quite innocently. (laughs) I was a member of uh, Columbia Access Television, may it rest in peace. And... um, the then studio manager, Sean Brown, told me that they were going to close. And I was disappointed, but I accepted it because the city had been reducing the funding for public media. And there was some equipment at CAT that I was interested in because I used it as a member. So I, this particular equipment was called an Apple box. It's literally just a wooden box, but it's something we use in film sets all the time. So I asked Sean, well, is it, could I buy your Apple boxes? You know, what's going to happen to them? And he said, I don't know, you should talk to the city. So I talked to the city and they said, well, you know, you can't buy these Apple boxes, but we are interested in having a new person run the media center. Uh, All the equipment will be together. So um, it just so happened that at that same time, I was working with another group of filmmakers and educators and we had started a nonprofit. We started the nonprofit and it was called VidWest. And its purpose was just to give us an umbrella organization to apply for grants and do certain projects that we couldn't do as individuals. So the the stars had aligned. We had this nonprofit. We had the infrastructure in place. And I went to those individuals and I asked them if this is something they would want to do together. And unanimously, the board at VidWest said, yes, let's do it. So we applied for the RFP at the city. I think the RFP, which is a request for proposal, was only open for a week. So it was almost something that you had to know about just to apply. We were the only organization that applied and we won it. So since then, we've been operating the community media center and working to get the public access channel back online. So besides CAT TV, I mean, the community media center, what else is that? Well, a community media center is basically a public school. And it serves all the functions of a school. It's a meeting space. It has 
mentors and people with experience and knowledge who can share that. It has the tools of the trade, which are cameras and lights and microphones. It has built out studios, which uh, normally, you know, if you want to rent a studio in Colombia and you ask around, you're looking at at least 50 or $100 an hour just to rent that space. And so you'll have musicians who save up for weeks or months so that they can record at a studio. And that's great. I mean, those studios, those private studios are really, really well run and they're part of the cornerstone of our arts community. But it means that it can be difficult to just get training time, just to practice around and learn. And so the media center, its purpose is to give people low cost, high access to a film studio, a photography studio, and an audio recording studio. So does Cat TV, as we used to know it, still exist? Well, Cat TV is a dream, and the dream will always live on. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, The public media cable channel is a, um, a right that's given to the city as part of state and federal legislation with cable companies. Cable companies have to get permission to work in certain jurisdictions. And part of that compromise is that they have to devote some of their channels to what's called PEG, which is public education and government. And so the city of Columbia has that right to say, we want a public channel, an education channel, and a government channel. And so long as the city exercises that right, we have one. And if you talk to the city, they will go back and forth about whether or not they want to exercise that right. Currently, they say they do. And so we've been working with the city to get the public channel back up and running. Uh, Part of that partnership is Mediacom because they have the infrastructure, which allows us to send a signal to people's TV sets in their homes. And currently, we're working with Mediacom, VidWest is, to get the special fiber line dug to our studio where we have our equipment, where we can then send community programming to Mediacom's head channel and then it will be on your TV set. Well, I mean, the world of media is changing. I mean, so few people are using TV as it used to be used. Can what you do not be sent as a streaming service? Why do we still need cable involved? So it's interesting that you talk about media trends. Um, I think we have to be careful and when we're talking about these sweeping generalizations about how we use media because our media landscape is actually very fractured. Um, And so there are places where people rely on cable. I've had these conversations, actually. I I was of the former thinking that cable is dead. Why invest in it? But then I reached out to other managers of cable stations, and there are places where communities don't have a robust internet network or robust news network. And so cable is one of the ways that they share community information, whether that's city council meetings or school board meetings, uh, weather advisories, community media. It's still very much a part of the fabric of many communities. But I think that generally, though, you're right about cable in Columbia, Missouri and mid-Missouri. I'm pretty sure the trends here are that cable viewership is declining. And that's evidenced in the cable franchise fees, which the city receives from cable companies, which is based on viewership. And those 
fees have been declining, which represents fewer people purchasing cable packages. So I know you put a a three-year plan proposal into the city manager last July, and that back in the day, the city council was funding Columbia Access Television to the tune of around 200,000, but that dwindled around 2015. And the last I heard, it was around 35,000. Did they agree to help fund that part of what you do? Or what was the outcome of your proposal? So we're in our third year uh, or about to enter our third year of running the community media center for the city. And we've received one year's worth of funding. Hmm. But they legally have to provide this peg access? <laughs> this is a gray area. Um, <laughs> it you know, always there, is. <laughs> the city, the, the, the public channel is the city's right. And if the city chooses not to exercise that right, then the cable company reclaims the channel and can do what it wants with it. One of the reasons that the volunteers at VidWest stepped up is that we didn't want to let the cable channel go without more thought. We felt that letting CAT close without a community response, without more thought about it, would be a really sad way to see this community resource disappear. I mean, we, we want to see the community media center evolve and become streamlined to best serve Columbia in the 21st century. That may be with a cable channel, or eventually it may be without a cable channel. But that decision should be an affirmative one, and it should be one that's empowering, and it's not something that is just left to the winds of chance. And so our advocacy right now has really been to bring this question to the city council so that it's not something just happens But what the result is, is what this community wants for public media. So tell me about the mission of VidWest. Well, VidWest is, uh, many of its board members are both filmmakers and educators. So, you know, our mission is to support and spread the art of cinematic storytelling. That's the short answer. Okay. (laughs) That was pretty short. I mean, thanks to places like Ragtag and True False, we have a fairly savvy citizenry when it comes to the storytelling and the importance of point of view. But there's a big difference between having access to a camera and making a compelling piece of digital storytelling. Is that part of what you do too? Yeah. I mean, if somebody is an aspiring filmmaker, maybe they have a camera, maybe they don't. Uh, Maybe they have a cell phone and they want to use a cinema camera. Connecting people with tools is is important. I think that connecting people to the tools has become less of a priority just because, as you've mentioned, you know, your cell phone is a studio in your pocket. The quality of video and audio that you can get out of a phone is astounding if you know how to use it correctly. So I think the priority is actually the practice of image making, the practice of cinematic storytelling, having a community and a place where that is something that's done and you can connect with those individuals. And this would be outside of a tuition college environment where you you have to go in significant debt and devote years of your life. A place in the community, more like a public library where you have the freedom to come and go and the access is very easy. I mean, I know you are a 501c3 nonprofit organization, but like any nonprofit, you need to make money to pay the rent and everything. What are you doing to generate revenue for VidWest? Well, I can tell you what our plans have been and then what has worked out. <laughs> uh, you know, 
we started this process thinking that we were uh, a contractor for the city and so that we could rely on city funding, at least this bare minimum. And what we've learned is, is that uh, the city does not operate that way. Um, even if the city council votes to approve us funding for a year, that funding is not guaranteed until we get a check in hand. And so we've had to come up with alternative sources. And I can't say that this is like a carefully strategically thought out fundraising plan. It was more like getting on a bicycle and riding down a steep hill and trying not to crash. <laughs> Great analogy. <laughs> and, you know, I, I, I think um, part of the reason I have faith in public media is that whenever we've had to go to the community for help, we have gotten funding. There have been people who have stepped up and given their time and their treasure to keep this endeavor going. And so the community has spoken with its resources. And so we're continuing to seek funding, of course, and we're continuing to work with the city so that there can be a long-term strategic plan. So the funding is not something that has to be scrambled for each year. I think that's tiring for people. I think that, it, it, you know, not just for the volunteers and the nonprofits, but I think for the city as well. Um, I think it'd be great for everyone if we had a long-term plan so that it wasn't every year trying to come together and decide, do we want to fund this thing? And what is it valuable? If we could have that discussion once and then have a, a five-year plan or a 10-year plan, we could really devote our all our energy to building something up. Well, before we close, tell me a little bit about the open house tomorrow. Ah, so the open house is kind of our our first big public event. We wanted to open up like this a year ago, but the pandemic required us to be more cautious so the open house that we have coming up is our opportunity to just invite anybody who wants to stop by to see the studio. We'll have volunteers. The studios have largely been built out at this point. So if you have a particular interest in photo or video or audio, we'll be able to give you a tour of the facility. We'll have some demos going on. So we'll be demonstrating our new live stream technology which is for multi-camera live streams. If you want to do graduations or conferences or events or concerts, we can set you up with cameras and switchers so that you can do high quality live streams to social media or anywhere on the internet. And we think it's important just to make the community feel welcome. Like you can walk into a place, this is public space. So the open house is intended to make People feel like, oh, this is my community media center. This is a place that's here to serve me. And these are people who want to help me. Well, the Vidwest Open House event is tomorrow afternoon from 1230 till 230 at their studios at 1600 Business Loop 70 East, a building which people might be more familiar with as the makerspace for the True False Film Fest, which they share together. You can find out more about Vidwest at vidwest.org. And Matt Schacht, thanks for all the time you donate as president of the Vidwest board. I know it's huge. And for taking time to chat today. Thanks, Diana. Four weeks from today will be the opening day for the 2021 Roots and Blues Festival at Stevens Lake Park. A few weeks ago, two of the festival's directors and owners, Tracy Lane and Shay Jasper, were on the show to talk about the festival generally. And they are back again today, this time to talk about some of the performers who will be playing at this year's festival. Since we last chatted, the festival has updated its COVID mitigation efforts. Following the advice of our local healthcare professionals, proof of a vaccination 
vaccination is now required as you enter the festival or for those who are unable to provide proof of vaccination, then a negative test obtained less than 72 hours before entry must be shown. There is also the recommendation that even those who have been vaccinated obtain a negative test before coming to the festival. And I'm sure they have taken flack from a small minority of people for these incredibly sensible requirements. But I, for one, am definitely in the much larger group of people who are incredibly grateful for those extra precautions. Tracy Lane and Shay Jasper, welcome back to Speaking of the Arts. Thank you for having us, Diana. Thanks, Diana. I don't want to linger on the updated requirements because today I want to focus on the fun part, the music. But is there anything else you want to add to reassure people, Shay? Sure. I thank you for your kind words. Um, We have had a small minority of folks that are irritated or they find that we're maybe challenging their personal liberties. We feel that way 0%. This is not about putting folks through extra steps in order to access our event. This is about the safety and security of our community. And that's what we value first and foremost. And we, we won't waver from that. Well, I'm very thankful. So thanks for going through those extra steps. So on with the music. I asked you in advance who you wanted to focus on today. And you suggested that we chat about some of the headliners who are maybe not quite as well known as Brandy Carlisle and Cheryl Crow. So let's start off with someone who, in fact, is a legend and incredibly well known as a member of the Staple Singers. And that is Mavis Staples. But Tracy, you said her name is not as widely known as amongst younger festival goers. So I know you are a huge fan, Tracy. So talk to me about Mavis Staples. Mavis Staples is one of my idols. So this is really, really exciting for me. It was really um, 1972 is when I would say I became sort of a an avid fan of music. That was the year that I discovered Soul Train. And that was the year that I saw my first live concert, which was the Jackson 5. And that was the year that the Staples Singers released I'll Take You There. So I sort of see this as my whole musical life coming full circle to be able to bring Mavis Staples back to Columbia. I know she has played Columbia a few times, but this is my first time promoting Mavis Staples. And as someone who has been an integral part of my life since I was three, it's pretty (laughs) exciting for me. I keep telling Shay, like, I'm going to have to ask to have my picture taken with Mavis. There's just no way I can't do it. (laughs) You're the director. You can do anything. (laughs) (laughs) I like to give, you know, I like to be respectful about space of artists, but, uh, Yeah, she's been with me for, what, 49 of my 52 years, so I got to do it. I just, I can't say enough good things. And I think Mavis is exemplary of what American Roots music is. She has covered the spectrum and done it so beautifully and so graciously. You know, I mean, she started out in gospel and then R&B and soul. She signed with Stax in, I believe, 1967. We featured Mavis on our blog this week, and um, being the avid fan that I am about Mavis, I was really pleasantly surprised to learn a few things that I didn't know about Mavis. Apparently, Bob Dylan proposed to her, and she declined it in the (laughs) 60s. And uh, one of my favorite Mavis stories, though, that I read about her was that 
when Prince approached her about producing a solo album, she couldn't believe that Prince knew who she was. Like she thought he was an icon and she was just completely blown away that Prince even knew who she was. And it's like, what? (laughs) You're Mavis Staples. (laughs) So I think that also says a lot about her humility. She's a Midwesterner. She's a Chicagoan. She's a, I, I get a little excited when it comes to talking about those 70s soul icons that I love. So obviously this is a huge, huge event for me. And I hope that Sunday night at 545 that I will be watching that set. You'll probably be in tears by that point of exhaustion and excitement. (laughs) (laughs) For sure. Was it hard to get somebody like Mavis Staples to come to a relatively small festival in the Midwest? Actually, no. She has played the festival in the past, she was familiar with Roots and Blues. So yeah, she was one of our first choices for a headliner and one of the first to confirm as well. Do you have a favorite album by her or favorite track? Which of the many Mavis Staples eras are are you (laughs) most fond of? That's a great question, but I I have to go back to 72. That I'll take you there. That 45, I played it so many times as a kid that my dad came into my bedroom and explained to me that records are made of wax and that if you listen to them too many (laughs) times in a row, they will get hot and melt and then you won't be able to hear that song anymore. So um, I'd say I have to go back to that Staple Singer album. But I will say her 2017 release, which was produced by Ben Harper, that was an, a fantastic album and was nominated for a Grammy for Best Traditional Blues Artist. So again, just showing the versatility of Mavis. But there's just no other voice like that. You know, she was featured in the Summer of Soul film that played at True False this year. And seeing her up on screen in Stevens Lake Park, I mean, I was just, of course, I was in tears and and just thinking like, she's going to be live in this park in a few months. And that was just a, a such an incredibly wonderful feeling. That is beautiful that she's been there twice this year, in effect, once on celluloid and once in reality. I mean, she is over 80. Is that right? Yes, she is. I believe she's 81. 81 or 82. I believe 82. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's amazing. I hope I'm still hanging out at festivals when I'm 82. Yeah, and to have a voice like that at 82. I mean, her voice sounds the same. That's what's amazing. Like that record from 2017 and then seeing that footage from 1969, she sounds the same. It's incredible. Well, let's take a listen to some music by Mavis Staples. This is Mavis Staples singing Change from her 2019 album entitled We Get By. Gotta change around here. Gotta change around here. Can't go on this way. Things gotta change around here. Say it loud, say it clear. Things gonna change around here. Fingers on the trigger around here. Fingers on the trigger around here. Bullets flying, mothers crying. We gotta change around here. Get it straight, be sure that you're here. Things gonna change around here. What good is freedom? If we haven't learned to be free, what good is freedom? If we haven't learned to be free, 
today, year after year, we're gonna change around here. That was Mavis Staples singing Change from her 2019 album, We Get By. And she is one of the headliners at this year's Roots and Blues Festival. So I am a child of the 70s and a clubber of the 90s. I love dance music. And I have to say that country ballads make me run for the hills, which I know is tantamount to heresy in the Midwest. um, But that's just the way it is. So I was really excited to discover Lennon Stella, who you have very kindly lined up to play on my birthday, Friday, the 24th of September. So Shay, tell us all about Lennon Stella. Sure. So it's funny that you say, you know, the country ballad will send you running for the hills. <laughs> As Lennon Stella started her career on the show Nashville. Um, I don't know if you're familiar and it sounds like probably it would not be of interest to you if you're not a fan of country music. <laughs> but right. um, I, you know, I binge watched that show several years ago. I believe it came out maybe four or five years ago. And so Lennon Stella was, um, she played, um, I can't remember her character's name, but she played on a show with her younger sister, Maisie. And they were children of Raina James, a country star. So, of course, they sing on the show and she really developed her career as a young country artist and then kind of, I would say, went off the grid a little bit and then came back with a couple of singles that are really pop-centered and our club-style music. And then last summer, Lennon Stella dropped her first album, 321. So many, as the kids call them, bangers on that album. <laughs> there are a lot of bangers, that's right. I, I enjoyed her as a country artist, but I have to say I enjoy her tenfold as a pop artist. A few of my favorites are, are Jealous and Good Night on that album, 321. But she's got a lot of really, really fun singles. She dropped uh, Kissing Other People, which is a really fun dance song. And she also has an acoustic version. But she's got a really versatile voice. And, and she's a lot of fun also on social media. She's one of the artists that we have on the bill that is more involved on social media. She's younger. She has most of her audience on Instagram and uh, and Snapchat and um, I definitely recommend listening to Lennon Stella if you've not given her a listen. And she is Canadian and I believe both her parents were also musicians. They had a band called the Stellas, I think. Oh, I see. I didn't know that. But yeah, she's she is Canadian and her and her, her sister Maisie went viral on YouTube actually before they started their careers as actresses so um they wrote a song and it was a really sweet video they were both i don't know probably 12 and 14 or uh, 13 and 10 or something and it was a lyric video on youtube and it got millions of views and that kind of kicked off their rise to stardom yeah they have a their own youtube channel Maisie and lennon and then i guess then they appeared on nashville they became actors and then their careers really really took off but yeah lennon i I love the track kissing other people i've listened to that multiple times it is just a lot of fun so let's listen to that one this is lennon stella singing kissing other people from her 2020 album called three two one When the lights come on, you know the game is done. 
other people. Oh, yeah. That's all I know that your love is gone. That's all I know I'm really moving on. Cause I don't feel guilty kissing other people. Lennon Stella appearing at this year's Roots and Blues Festival on the evening of Friday the 24th of September. So another band that definitely makes it on to my must-see list is Tank and the Bangers who are playing on Saturday evening. Shay, give us the lowdown on the band that you describe on the Roots and Blues website as being a beacon of life. Absolutely. So Tank and the Bangers became kind of locally famous in New Orleans, playing on the corner, um, very big, loud sound. And then in 2017, they entered NPR's Tiny Desk Contest. And that's honestly where I discovered them. I try to follow the NPR Tiny Desk Contest each year. I've had friends enter into the Tiny Desk Contest. And so with Tank being a slam poet, it was a, a sound that was both familiar and also incredibly unique and so I was I was really excited to see that they won. I believe I discovered her, or I, I became familiar with her during the um, the final round. I believe it was uh, you know taking the bangas against maybe three or four other bands, and um, I was so happy to see that they won. And their career has just really taken off since. They just seem like a huge amount of fun. Like watching their videos, they don't take themselves too seriously. They're having a great time with everything they do. Have you seen their stage set or heard about their stage set? Is it equally fun as their videos? So I have not seen them live. Um, I know that they've been to Columbia once or twice at uh, Rose Music Hall. But I, I watch the videos. The chemistry that they have together is so incredible. It's lighthearted and then it can become serious and then lighthearted again. And there's always laughing and smiles and just this sense of community uh, between the four of them. So they had a new album out a couple of years ago, 2019, called Green Balloon. And when I was thinking about which tracks we might want to play, um, <laughs> I was looking I was looking through the album and most of them are marked explicit. <laughs> so yes. That limited it to what we could play. So as they tend to be on the more explicit side, and I guess it's it's maybe references to drugs is, is what makes them explicit. Is this a performance that maybe isn't for families? You know, it, it might tend to kind of skew a little bit more... Um, maybe 16 and older, um, there are references to drugs. But I think, you know, any parent that is willing to have a conversation with their kid about content and, and you know, I think, honestly, I, I think it's family-friendly as long as you're comfortable having your, your child just kind of being exposed to, to the content that they're talking about. And, you know, it is uh, specifically references to weed and being high. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Tracy, have you heard Tank and the Bangas when they've been in Colombia? I have not, actually. I have missed them um, when they have been in town. So I am also, this will also be my first time seeing them live as well. I do love their energy. There's a softer side of Tank and the Bangas, too. I think, uh, I think they covered De- Jackie DeShannon's What the World Needs Now is Love, Sweet Love. 
in 2020. So there are multiple sides of Tank, just as there are of you know many of our artists. Well, let's take a listen. This is a track from Green Balloon, their 2019 album, and it is called Hot Air Balloons. So take it away, Tank and the Bangers. by Tank and the Bangers who'll be performing Saturday night at this year's Roots and Blues. So I was so excited when I checked your lineup again this week to find an addition to the schedule. A two times former guest on Speaking of the Arts, in fact, I think she was on my first ever show that I did, the incredible hometown girl Sifa Bihomora. Tracy, how did she only arrive on the schedule in the past couple of weeks? It was kind of serendipitous. So Shay and I were at a, we had scheduled a meeting with one of our sponsors at Logboat just a few weeks ago. And as it happened, when we arrived on the scene, Sifa and her band were setting up to do a fundraising event for her Rwandan music initiative. And I was just delighted and thrilled to see that that she was in town. She went to high school with my daughter, so she's a, you know, a Hickman alum. And so my original awareness of Sifa was I believe at a like a talent night at Hickman uh, several years ago. Some of her band members were friends of my daughter's. So when I saw her, I was just so delighted to see she was in town and I assumed she was just here visiting her family and doing like a one night gig. And uh, Shay and I started chatting with her and found out she was going to be back in town for a few months. And everything about Sifa, I think, is just an illustration of the values and the vision that Shay and I have 
for what our music and the music industry can be and should be. She represents everything that we believe in about the power and the magic of music. So knowing that she was back, having no idea that she would be, we just had to find a place to carve out to include Sifa and her band in our lineup. She is such a star in the making. She went off to the Berklee School of Music and I believe she won Best Songwriter Award, which is huge. I mean, this is at Berklee School of Music um, and she's winning awards. She was so charismatic and centred and confident in her performance, even before she went off to college, like as a 17-year-old still at Hickman. And so I'm so excited to see her now, after being away for a few years, really establishing her her herself as an artist, her songwriting abilities, her performance style. It's going to be great to see her on such a big stage. And again, thank you very much for putting her on my birthday on Friday evening. It's very kind of you, Tracy and Shay. You are quite welcome. <laughs> <laughs> a pleasure. We did it on purpose. <laughs> well, let's take a listen to her latest release. This is called Josh and the Piano. was the fantastic local hometown girl Sifa who'll be performing at Roots and Blues on Friday evening. So I know you have fewer passes available this year to accommodate COVID safety protocols plus you are honouring last year's pass holders if they wanted to transfer to this year. So just give me a quick update on what is the situation regarding availability of passes. Sure. So we, um, you know, we continue to sell passes. We like you're correct in that we have lowered our capacity this year, but there are, is still time. Uh, there is still some space. If you haven't purchased your pass yet, there are plenty to do so. 
there's room for everyone who uh, wants to share that experience this year. So get vaccinated if you haven't been vaccinated yet and and uh, we'll have a great time. And I also saw that you had now opened up the volunteer sign up. Last time we spoke at the beginning of August, that hadn't happened yet because you were still waiting to get confirmation on, on health protocols from the city health department. So, Shay, can you give us a quick overview of your volunteer needs and again, what requirements, health requirements you have for those people too? Absolutely. So as far as volunteer needs, we need folks that are willing to be on the green team to help us sort recycling and compost and landfill. We need folks to help us keep surfaces sanitized, guest welcome, uh, folks to welcome folks coming through the gates, folks to welcome our VIP guests and other general volunteer needs. As far as the requirements, we are utilizing those same protocol requirements, must be vaccinated to be a volunteer. If you can't present the vaccination card, then a test is required within 72 hours of your first shift. Okay. And how many volunteers do you need in total? We usually need about 300. And each volunteer will receive a limited edition t-shirt. And if they work two four-hour shifts, you'll also receive a wristband for the weekend. That's pretty huge. For eight hours of volunteer service, then you get a pass to the whole weekend. So that's fantastic gift to volunteers. There is a lovely quote by Mavis Staples and something that you sent out that says, I sing because I want to leave people feeling better than I found them. I want them to walk away with a positive message in their hearts, feeling stronger than they felt before. And Tracy, when I read that, I felt like that summed up how you feel about your work with Roots and Blues? Does that resonate with you? Absolutely. Yes. I don't think I could say it any better than that. I feel like the power that music has to connect people can supersede all of our differences. I truly believe that music can be the tie that binds us. Perfect. Well, on that note, this year's Roots and Blues will be at Stevens Lake Park from Friday the 24th to Sunday the 26th of September. You can see the full lineup of artists and find information about the festival at rootsandbluesfestival.com. Tracy and Shay, thanks for putting together such a fabulous lineup. And let's have you back on the September the 24th show as the festival kicks off. Great. Thanks for having us, Diana. And that is it for another week. All the Speaking of the Arts episodes are available as podcasts, which you can hear at speakingofthearts.transistor.fm, as well as on Spotify. And of course, you can also connect through the KOPN website at kopn.org. Thank you to my guests today, Columbia Entertainment Company's Caleb Alexander, Matt Schacht from Vidwest and Tracy Lane and Shay Jasper from Roots and Blues. Thanks, as always, to guitarist Yasmin Williams, whose song Restless Heart opens and closes the show. You can find more of her music on Spotify and on her website at yasminwilliamsmusic.com. Finally, thank you so much for listening. I'll be back next week with more peeks behind the arts curtain. Until then... Stay arty, Missouri! Missouri.